Welcome to episode 32 of the Neural Network. Today we have a fun, interesting, and intellectually provocative episode. I'm joined by a somewhat of a visionary in the world of anatomy, my good friend Julian Baker. Julian has a unique approach that goes beyond the confines of many textbooks when it comes to anatomy. He brings the body to life in ways that many of us never really imagined. So from the dance of our muscles to the stories our scars tell, we're about to embark on a journey that promises to reshape how we view the human form. So sit back, relax, and join us as we take a deep dive into the world of functional anatomy. Why, why on earth would you use a saw to cut through skin? It would just get clawed, like it would just I, I, get pulled. I, I literally have no idea. I have no no concepts as to why these people, you know, it's and the oscillating saw. You can touch an oscillating saw. If you use one, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can just touch an oscillating saw to your skin, and it's right. Fine. That's the same one they use. Well, is that the same saw that they use for like cutting off casts? Yeah, and it's the same yeah. one if you, you can use it on bathroom tiles and stuff. stuff yeah. Like that. We used to have one in the necropsy room for the goats. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah, you would have these big butcher knives for the skin and stuff like that, but then when you got to the bone, if you if you weren't strong enough, I guess, to just break it open, then... It makes a nice... Yeah. It makes for a nice, um, a nice straight cut, particularly around skulls yeah. and stuff. Although I will say I, I learned I, I learned the most probably about mammalian anatomy from the goats in the necropsy room because once we finished the studies, we had to you know take the goats to necropsy and uh, they had to be go into biohazard buckets and so you oftentimes had to quarter the animal in order to get it into the into the buckets and uh, so you had to sort of learn where all the different connection points were in order to get the cleanest necropsy and that was quite a int- intriguing process i the, guess i'll say the cleanest the cleanest bits were what would, how do you mean yeah well in, in order to in order to get it to fit into the buckets so that the cleanup was the least amount necessary you sort of learned where a lot of the major vessels sort of run through and you learn uh, where, okay like right. which connective tissue was the easiest to cut through and stuff like that you know yeah yeah okay yeah i'm yeah. with you. you i learned i learned kind of all that in um in um in chef school, you know, that's where I was doing my, doing my training for that kind of stuff. So I think, you know, if you can take an animal apart, you can take a human apart. That's my yeah. view. But, you know, if you address a deer, well. then you can teach anatomy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, well, right. Welcome to the show, Julian. Thank you. Thank you. I'm very, I'm very excited. We finally got here in the end. Yeah. We finally made it work. You're a busy guy. That's a good thing though. Um, yeah. It, the, these things, you know, oh, that's better. I can hear myself now. Um, yeah, these things take a, a little time to um, to sort themselves out. So I'm, I'm yeah. so sorry that I didn't get back to you. Suddenly, weeks went by. No, no, it's good. That's I've I found with scheduling with podcasts, you know, it's sort of an art to be able to schedule in itself. But, yeah, I'm just actually sort of starting a um, a thing myself, which is um, um, is, is it a podcast? I'm going to do it on I'm going to do it on screen because I can bring pictures in and stuff. And I'm, I've called it another collection of parts. <laughs> Just put another thing together. Sum, it kind of sums up really my my approach to the whole thing. And, yeah, and um, that's 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 really yeah. If I had to sort of if I had to describe what I was about, then it would be it would it would be saying you know the body. In fact, my new business card is just arrived, and it's a little a little thing which is which is saying not not a collection of parts, and that's <laughs> a full that collection. Describes it. 
Yeah. And that's, that I think that's the trouble. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway. So you're doing, uh, so, so right now you're doing a lot of, you know, you have your stuff in functional anatomy. Is that yeah. pretty much what your main gig is going on right now? Um, I'd, I'd like it to be. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's yeah. really where I'm at in terms of, um, of, 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 I want to change the world. You know, that's my, don't we all? That's, right? that's simple goal. Yeah. There's nothing, nothing harm, harmless in that. Um, yeah. and I think I have got something that could, could radically alter the way that we understand the human over the next 15 years and, and change people's quality of life um, enormously. Um, so, yeah, that's what that's really what I want to try and do. And, so and it's how, really simple. It's really simple. It's really cheap. And it's like, you know, it's one of those things that yeah. you just like got to bust steps. through the paradigm. Like three Don't? steps. Like three steps mainly. You know. It's kind of one, really. It's, a, it's one step. <laughs> And I kid you not, it's like, it's, it's once we start to do it, we'll go, well, why don't we, why don't we do this for a million years ago? What, what, what took us so long? Yeah. Mm. So how, so, mm. so with the, with, uh, I don't want to, you know, overuse the term functional anatomy, but I just sure. use it because that's sort of what you have collectively called many of the things, but yeah. how do you sort of define when you're, you know, looking at functional anatomy of a human? Like what is, what is the whole premise about basically? Um, <clears throat> Yeah, let's go. Let's go back and say say what's the definition of the word an anatomy? And ana and tomi means to cut and up. They're the Greek words. Ana and tomi cut and up. And uh-huh. so you know, for, for a few hundred years, um, we, we've been cutting people up and studying their parts. And the reason we got to that point is because medicine and the church were strange bedfellows, and you had to be really careful about about saying that you know. Um, the body was a whole unit or what have you, because that was going to be heretical. And, and up until you know, a couple of hundred years ago, the, the bodies that anatomists would look at were, were bodies that were prisoners. And, and it was a sentence in, 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 in the Renaissance Italy that if you, um, if you were bad, well, fine, you got hung up and that's fair enough. But then, then the worst thing possible for you would be to then be given to the dissectors afterwards because it mean, meant you weren't going to heaven. You weren't, you weren't going to go and meet your maker in, in his form. And it was a huge punishment for people. And so, you know, the idea, and it's really only last year the Pope said, well, yes, okay, Catholics can be cremated. You know, we know that. But yeah. as long as you keep the ashes together, then you can be cremated. So, so it's, it's, it's religion and medicine have always struggled. And, and so the idea of, you know, and we have to start somewhere. It's fine to, you know, learn anatomy by learning the parts, but, Nobody's ever really put it back together again. So there's no, not really any function. We say, right, well, this muscle, you know, this is a tricep and it flexes the arm. And that's yeah. a, um, a bicep flexes the arm, tricep extends the arm, and antagonist and, an, and agonist. But anatomy conveniently ignores the laws of physics. And that's where it all goes down, like, quite literally. It's, you know. Well, it's almost, you know, like when I, I, so I hated anatomy when I was going through, <laughs> when I was going through graduate school or whatever, I actually, I, I had to retake anatomy and physiology before I then got a PhD in physiology, you know, so that's how it works. Oh, uh, hang on, hang on. How, how was that? Six minutes and 30 seconds. That's my bingo card. I just wonder how long before you mentioned your PhD. So how many minute PhDs have you got, Nick? So <laughs> I, I, it's almost, I, it's almost it like a, if you're a vegan or a PhD, which oh, we're going to yeah, talk about absolutely. first. Absolutely. <laughs> How fast is it before you mention it? No, I just, I, I like mentioning the fact that, you know, like you had to retake it before then you can just go on. Cause it's like, it's weird because it's almost like you take the same discipline, but you put it in two different forms and yeah. suddenly like at one time it doesn't click, you don't understand it. And then in another form, it's the exact same content, 
but suddenly something clicks and it's just taught in a different way. And it sort of shows you that the, how impactful the way that someone teaches something can have an impact, yeah. you know? Yeah. And so for me, it was a lot of it was like sort of putting it together is like the physiology made sense. It came together. Mm -hmm. You're sort of looking at how things work, but when it came to the anatomy, a lot of it and a lot of how it's taught is just blunt memorization. And yeah. I never really understood why I was memorizing why this is the extensor pollux or longus or something like that. But then, you know, even in, in neuroscience, what I was going to connect it to here, uh, you know, because now I've, I've done a fellowship in, in a neuroscience uh, heavy field, is that you have a lot of these neuroanatomical studies that are saying, well, here's the cell group and here's the rigid line around this part of the brain and this is this nucleus. And then you flip it on its head and when you try to study these things, you realize that there's a lot of blurred lines between everything. And sometimes these neurons are active in this process and sometimes they're not. And there's sort of sometimes these spatial elongations. Yeah, I mean, here, here's, here's how I put it to you in terms of, um, and I've done a bit of, a, a bit of both. And, and, you know, it, where does neurology end and psychology begin? Do you see what I'm saying? They're, they're sort of, they're fellows in the same bed and, and they go, well, we've got behaviors and we understand, we have to understand within a neurological perspective that not all behaviors, we can track an electrical impulse, but it doesn't necessarily mean to say that that defines a behavior, you know, that, that one person's electrical impulse over spinach isn't going to be the same as somebody else's electrical impulse over, you know, having sex with a goat or whatever, you know, it's like, because there's a lot of behavior involved and a lot of nuance involved and anatomy doesn't really allow for that it, it's traditional anatomy says you know this is the muscle that does that um, and 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 nobody then says well you know why do you how do we incorporate behaviors within that how do we incorporate compensations um so you know your head weighs 12 pounds right so i'm telling 12 pounds 15 if you're an academic you know <laughs> gotta add the ego the, it, it gets heavier for each but it gets your brain shrinks when you get pregnant you know that by the way Just really? the woman oh. out there yeah you lose about 10 percent of your mass uh, oh. of, of brain volume I, um you don't have to tell me as to whether that's going to impact on anything else but and you don't get it back apparently anyway so um but your head depending on where you cut it you know your head weighs 10 12 pounds some about the bowl as wide of a bowling ball so you you know you hold that bowling ball above your head you're not going to be up there for very long so you've got a quite a significant weight that's quite a long way up, sort of stuck up there, and you've got to really balance that off. And if you've ever, as a kid, if you ever, ever ride your bike hands free, you know, put your arms out, and you were, you know, without your hands on your handlebars, or if you've ridden a uh, skateboard, try to slackline any of those things, you know that you move your head even slightly out of a central line, it's going to change the direction that you travel in. If you ski, you know, you move your head, you'll move direction. If you've got a good horse, you, you know, move your head, the horse will change direction. So it tells us that this is the law of physics, that you know, it's not just a case of contracting a muscle and pulling it one way, and then you have a, that's not your equal and opposite reaction as far as physics is concerned. What you now have is you've got a, a wrist and a hand which is changing its position in time and space, and it has to be compensations that go way beyond just that isolated muscle perspective so you know if you move your head to one side and hold it there you're loading and you're contracting and you're stabilizing and you're rotating an entire section of your body all the way down to your feet um, and that's going to load your knees differently so and we don't we any five-year-old who's tried to ride a bike will understand that yeah but we don't teach our doctors that we don't teach our medics that we don't teach our surgeons that it's so, it is interesting like the way in when you take a step back and look at the way that some of the human anatomy is formed, it is kind of odd. 
Like why, why is it that we have such a heavy structure poached on such a, you know, for most average humans, a, a pretty feeble neck structure, you know? Ah, well, that's because, that's because if you, if you look back, um, I, I can't do the visuals on it, but if you look back and if you look at the neck from the thoracic spine upwards yeah. and you look at the vertebrae of a human, they're very narrow. Now you go and look at a gorilla and you'll see those neck vertebrae are really long. They're very, oh. very, they're long. So, so what happened is as we, as we've evolved, you know, if you imagine we're down here, knuckles on the ground and, uh, you know, we're down here and we're protecting ourselves because this is, this is all, you know, if we stand up. These are all the bits that can, you'll attack, you know, you watched a bit of MMA, you know, nobody kicks you in the shins and it's, yeah. it's your throat here. It's the, the abdomen, the viscera in here. It's your, it's your balls. Um, and your genitals and so you're down in here and as we've climbed up the food chain you know, we've, we've ended up with no natural predators so now we can stand up and uh. we can expose ourselves and we can say come and have a go if you think you're hard enough type thing and as a result we can now move our head around the world and we can look around you know, where everything is but we couldn't do that um, we, we, we couldn't do that if we had these massive great big neck vertebrae so as we've evolved our, our vertebrae of our neck our spinal vertebrae got quite narrow and what's been replaced is what we refer to now as a nuchal ligament, which is sort of a floppy ligament, which is the attachment site for muscles. So the neck has got loads of little muscles that allow us to move our head around, look up and look out and, uh, and generally be efficient in exploring the world. Um, but the, 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 the big gorillas and the big apes have still got those long, those, those longer neck vertebrae. Oh, so if you go to a power lifter gym, you'll see those long ones. Yeah. <laughs> Anywhere so that cross, CrossFit is done. Yeah, well, CrossFit, as we've we've covered on this podcast, can ruin families. <laughs> no, but uh, so once once we understand that once we understand that movement is isn't the movement isn't the movement of your elbow or your head or your neck isn't coming from that, but there's a whole sequence of of events that require physics and stabilization. It's stability, which is the key. You know, so an exercise I, I, I there's a couple of exercises I'll, I'll give give you, which is my students, which is one is um. I always say that Derek has knee pain because he's deaf. And, and so if you want to do a differential diagnosis, you know, he's got knee pain, but he's got it because he's deaf. And I'll, I'll cut to the chase at the end. Well, you know, is it whatever? He didn't hear a car coming. There's great questions that people ask. But at the end of the day, what it is, is that I watched my father do it over the years. As he, as he started to lose his hearing, it didn't happen overnight, but he, he started to lean in to listen to conversations. Uh. And he moved his body forward and he changed yeah. his position, he rotated in, and then he started having knee pain. Like, yeah, there you go. So once so, we understand so, that these 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 differentiations in, in body mechanics, then we can see that our clinical outcomes can change because we can go, sure, we you know, you've got a, a knee, we might need to look at that, but actually we can hold you back by taking the way that the, the way that you move yourself, balancing you out, looking at that, and maybe putting a hearing aid in. So how is it, you know, I notice it sometimes when I'm doing mouse surgery. You know, is that you're you're very hunched over and you're kind of in this crunched little position, super focused for a long time, making sure that it doesn't bleed out. Um, when you get finished, you get some weird pains every once in a while because you're sort of stuck in this one position for a long time. And you also notice it a lot of times, like when you're on an airplane, for example, and all of a sudden you get off, and for the next three days you're sort of uh, stiff, if you will. Yeah. How is it? You know, when you're looking at the interconnectedness of the different connective tissues. Like we have such a fluidity and a flexibility amongst these tissues, but yet at the same time, they tend to, I don't know, I don't even know how to explain it. Like, you know, you're the one looking inside the tissue. How do you explain a lot of this tightness that can just sort of occur? 
Well, because because the beautiful thing about about humans um, is that we're very very adaptable, uh, and and that's the that's the amazing thing that we that we've been able to adapt ourselves to whatever it is that we need to do. And um, so there's a guy called um, Amar Bharati. If you if you Google him, Amar Bharati, A B H A R A T I, um, and um, he's seventy. He's actually died now. He died a couple of years ago, and he was in his seventies. You with me? Well, now we're back. Oh, where did where did we get to? There we go. Oh, so I was. Uh, you were talking about that. stiffness and, and yeah, doing I was talking some about mouse surgery. Yeah, well, when you're doing uh, like mouse surgery, for example, when you're yeah. kind of hunched over, yeah, crouched hunched over and traveling around, and yeah, exactly. And, and you it, sort of said, "How do we get to that stiffness point?" Yeah, like, I'm not sure if you heard where we started to answer. No, I didn't. I didn't hear anything. <laughs> All right, so I was saying. The, the great thing about humans is that we are massively adaptable. You know, if you think about what we're able to do, you think about bits of the brain and how quickly we can adapt when they get damaged in, in ways that we couldn't imagine. And the same thing goes as far as our physical form. There's a chap, there's a guy called Amar Bharati. I think it's Amar Bharati, if you Google him. Um, uh, he's dead now, and it, it was, but he was in his 70s and he'd had his arm held up straight up in the air, uh, he oh, said, right. for 35 years, you know, 35, 40 years. He was a sadhu in India, and, and you know the idea is is that you can say that you know I can I can I can subject my body to all kinds of tortures because ultimately it's not my body, and I'm going to go back to God. And so that was his his principle. But he, he you see the pictures of him. There's quite a few online, and um, it's it stuck. His his arm is stuck up there. Yeah. So so you know your your body's not your brain. If you want to do something stupid to it, then you go right ahead and do it, and your body will adapt and it will create inflammatory processes, and those inflammatory processes will create cellular activity and inflammation always leads to proliferation and it will lay down the tissues that you need to lay down in order for you to be hunched over operating on mice 12 hours a day if you so want you know it's it's you know, you, you, your, your nervous system and your and your physical cellular activity is not your mother it's not going to say don't do that you know yeah so it just sort of uh, adapts in a way that stiffens us to make it more comfortable while we're doing it yeah, say, yeah, yeah, it'll 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 lay it down because it's assuming. Uh, where are we going? It's assuming that you need to. I'm just trying to find the email. Um, it's assuming that you need to do that, and so it will provide you with the wherewithal to be to be very adaptable um, and 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 do what it is you need to do in order to to, to survive. And that's our that, that's the beautiful thing about us as humans, and the, the downfall that we've been able to be incredibly adaptive and, and not really have much in the way of genes because they're yeah. not you know, that they're, they're not very adaptable and, and and base our systems around bacteria and you know and, and wet connective tissue so then when you you know when because you've you've looked at or you've dissected a, a decent amount of, of cadavers uh mm. over the years and besides differences in you know adipose tissue which of course is a lot of dietary stuff how variable is the structure underlying a lot of the anatomy of, of humans? Um, it, it, it's an interesting question because it, 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 you know that it, it goes it begs it, it it goes back to what I was saying before about the adaptability. So when, when we look at, uh, at donors within medical schools, you're looking for a standardized norm of of somebody that's relatively small that fits on the table that is quite healthy but also is also dead. And so they yeah. don't. You don't tend to get um, those out of the norm. And I do. I do see a lot of those out of the norm. So you'll see um, donors where you know the muscle will be there, but it's so encased and surrounded by fat that the muscle doesn't have 
the same attachment and function anymore. Um, the bones decayed and decreased. And so all the tissues are there, but the environmental interaction has changed the way that they are going to respond and the way that they're going to uh, going to be around. And so, you know, you don't have the, the, the luxury of having an evolutionary change in the space of a single generation. So yeah. <laughs> if, you're, if you're 300 pounds um, and five foot five, then you're going to struggle. That's just how it's going to work. You're not going to have the ability to adapt that much and that quickly. Yeah. And yeah, because the reason I ask is, uh, let's say with a lot of the, you brought up CrossFit before, you know, and that's uh, a big push for a lot of the functional movement as they might call it, you know, putting, uh, bands on and stretching things and moving things in different ways. Let's, let's, let, let's, let's just, let's just define what we're talking about as function. When the word we use function is as a word. Yeah. So yeah, let's, let's talk about function. What do we mean by, by function? Cause it's an important thing. And, sure. and, 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 um, is CrossFit functional movement? I mean, any movement's functional movement if it's well, not necessarily. Yeah, I mean, but you know, you can have if you go to a neurological principle and you go to say, right, okay, you can have movement, right, and you yeah. can have lower spinal cord movement, so you can have spinal reflexes, and they're not really function; they're you know, they're just reflexes. There's nothing. There's no meaning that's imputed them. So you go up that hierarchy of voluntary motor control. And, yeah. uh, and you get up to the cerebral cortex and now you have action with movement and it gives meaning, you know, it's a function. So function is going to change, but function is what I would say is, is what I need to do on any given day or on a daily basis in order to be able to live my life the way that I want it. And, and that's sure. going to be different from person to person. It's going to be different from day to day. You know, the, per, the my mother is 90 and, uh, you know, she's a, she's a fighting it's a, we can't call it fighting jibos, but you know, she's just, she's, she ain't going to die. You know, yeah. I think death's been waiting outside her tapping his, that taxi fare has been running up for years, but she's very robust. And, um, you know, so, so her adaptation has been such that she doesn't really, her function is she gets out of bed in the morning, she goes for a walk, she goes down the shop, comes back. She, her, she's not going to go and need to play volleyball. Yeah. Um, you get the people that are yogis and they can do a great big warrior pose. Well, that's great. But the thing that the warrior pose does, what it makes you good at doing is the warrior pose. It doesn't make you better at playing the trombone. So, so, so exercise and is function specific. So grabbing hold of rubber bands and pulling them makes you good at rubbing, grabbing hold of rubber bands and pulling them and telling other people that you're good at it. Yeah. Uh, well, what else is it functional? You know, grabbing hold of a tricep bar and pulling it down gives you big triceps. Whoop de do. What you know? It, you notice it, it a lot in in jujitsu, like because you can be very strong, but then you get on the mats and you're kind of useless. Sure, it, it, yeah. it means nothing. If you, you know, if you can't go out and wash your car or play with your kids, then you know what the hell? What are we playing at? So, so, so function is there's function and there's extra functional. There is that element of people that are doing stuff that um, is is extra functional they are stretching and they're very very bendy and they can bend down and put their head between their legs and it again it's like great i'm, I'm happy for you what what do you need to do that for if, if you're a pole dancer and you need to you know have dollar bills stuck down your pants then fine but if you're not it's extra functional um and and, and that's really what i'm always trying to get people to do is to assess people and, and look at people to the function that is required rather than necessarily something that is your idea or your goal beyond it. Yeah. So, but, so, so can the extra function, I guess, let's say that you're using extra functional movements, 
or ex- extra functional exercises in order to potentiate something about a quote everyday function. Is there, you know, when you're taking the connective tissue and you're sort of targeting it, if you will, even though for the most part, you know, whatever they think that they might be targeting a lot of times isn't often the case. Uh, but how pliable, you know, you said the body is very adaptable, but how pliable are some of these underlying structures for movement? If that, if that makes sense. So like if you're grabbing a band and you're suddenly constricting a muscle and you're stretching all the fascia around in there, how much of that is just mental that the fact that now you've suddenly have a, a reset of some of the nociceptors, if you will, or you sort of have a different pain threshold and how much of it do you think is actually changing the underlying structure of the tissue itself it's a good question i mean you know when people sort of say you lengthen a muscle you know that you get you get longer muscle well you you don't you, you can't it's not you know otherwise you'd have to get longer bone everybody that was bendy would be eight foot tall and yeah. not so, so you know you have a sliding mechanism of, of 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 thin filaments and thick filaments and they're surrounded and held in place by lots of different forms of collagen-based connective tissue. And there isn't a single thing that you can say, this is fascia. You know, this is why I moved away from um, the sort of the, the fascia movement, if you like. I kind of got a little bit, a little bit obsessive about it. They, they did. And, and I'm, I, you know, I'm a bit uncomfortable because this fascia doesn't exist except in its relationship to muscle. So the muscle fiber will fall apart without the fascia. Um, and, uh, you know, the fascia exists to serve as a container and a separator. And so anything that's moving, you're not moving fascia over and above muscle and you're not moving muscle over and above fascia. As far as the actual um, stretching, we don't really know the mechanism of stretching. We don't know why precisely people are able to bend more or be more flexible when they stretch. We think it's probably to do with some kind of nociceptive input that you just mentioned, you know, Golgi tendon reflex and stuff like that. But ultimately, stretching doesn't make you healthier. It's not, there's no benefit to being bendy. Um, and in fact, quite often it, it's the opposite because as I mentioned, you have stability and you have to have mobility and, and function is going to require a trade off of both of those. You know, you get a, um, um, what is it? What, what did I say that, um, what did I say that your, your ball was called the other day? Um, I, I oh, the, great. The, the elliptical yeah, spheroid it, it is <laughs> a little cheek, yeah, uh, it, cheek and t- or tongue and cheek it's, for, it's a uh, prolate spheroid essentially elliptical in profile um, yeah the that's, name of your ball. that's our football so, here. so that's your football so you get a you, you you get a defensive defensive linebacker you know and he's huge and he's not going to be able to bend down and touch his toes and do a plie because functionally he needs to be more stable than he does need to be more mobile yeah. and then at the other end of the scale you get a you know a ballerina or a dancer and and they need to be more uh more mobile than they do stable and so in the middle, we need a combination of both. So if you're very flexible, you know, then the chances are that you are, it's a trade-off. It's like a seesaw, load one end. The chances are that you are less stable. Um, and if you're overly, overly mobile, then the chances are that you're, you know, that you're, you're, you're trading off at the other end. And so th- there will always be a, a payoff to that. So strength, yeah. mobility, flexibility. And it's the guys that you see that do, the, do, do those rings, you know, the, the Olympic rings. Those guys are insane, you know. And they've yeah. got that balance, but it's very, very rare to see that. Um, I, well, I think that's an important point that a lot of people that are interested in training don't often think about is the fact that mobility is inverse of that of stability. Absolutely. And a lot of times you add mobility training in, in order to add stability, but that's not, that's not how it works. Like by definition. 
No. It's I mean, kind a of lot of the guys you see that it's it's great. It's got very the guys. I mean, I climb, so the guys that I I climb, I'm a, I'm a veteran climber. You know, it doesn't mean sound been good at it. It means I'm old. And uh, <laughs> it, but the guys that the guys that you see climbing, you know, they're, they're doing eight A's and they're climbing up something the size of a P. And they're amazing because they can get their heel on that stuff and then they can reach around and pull themselves up with a finger. So they have that strength, they have that stability and they have that mobility. Um, and, and they tend not to be bendy. You know, you put them on the ground and you move them around and they're not that bendy as far as, you know, say compared to some, some yogi people. Um, so they have it all going on because there's a function that requires for them to, to get to that point and, and, and not, you know, not fall off. But it yeah. is a, it is a rare thing, and it's a misunderstanding that we have that the fact that you know, well, I do yoga or I do strength training, and, and you know, what what's your function? What what do you want to achieve in three or four or five years time in order to then be able to to to, to see that you are that you are determined achieving your potential as far as your health is concerned? You see what I mean? Yeah, goal based, but <laughs> so with with you know, you teach a lot of seminars on dissections and human bodies and using sort of visualizing the anatomy in order to learn a lot about function of the actual human body itself. How does gaining knowledge of the basic blueprint of that, of the musculoskeletal system inform us about how we can actually move or how someone can take some of this knowledge and implement it for themselves in order to have, let's say pain relief or better performance or whatever it might be. Uh, it's a good question. I think, I mean, dissection, this, for me, dissection is 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 a, a means to an end in, in terms of in taking people and my, my, my target audience isn't isn't medical people or surgeons or doctors. You know, they're, they're sort of a kind of a lost cause in that respect because they've got a very set, like yourself, you know, anatomy and physiology. They had to learn it. They probably hated it. They did it on gray cadavers. And and really my, my target audience is the manual and movement therapists who, who tend not to have that degree of confidence or understanding, um, but also have a, an intuitive way. They're working on the whole of the body. You know, you go in for a massage, they don't just rub your elbow or, or they'll tend to work on all of you and understand that there is a holistic um, approach that's required. And so to show them that, yeah, this stuff is joined up, that when I move that, that goes across there. This is how somebody may compensate as far as their movement patterns are concerned. This is how pain might present. Um, these are all these things that we can do to sort of to provide a, an evidence for want of a better word. I hate that word, but um, to provide a, a degree of, of insight to say, yeah, that, you know, we, 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 we all understand the body is connected. The body is joined up. And yet inter academically and intellectually, we don't allow for that to be incorporated in our in our sense of approach. And, and as a result, what we end up with is a, is a real disconnected um, health system. We won't go into the American health system, but because um, I mean, I mean, I, I spend. I love coming to. I love coming to your crazy country, but oh my god, you know. And uh, but there, but there is no, there's no point. Of, there's no touch offered at, at a point of delivery anywhere in the Western world, as far as the health is concerned. Yeah. Yet that's the thing that you know. We are mammals. We are we are pack animals, and we we've always we've always lived on touch we grew up on it and, and very very interesting one of my um when i get around to doing my phd it's going to be on privation dwarfism and, and how these groups of children that were found in romania uh who weren't touched for two and a half years 
um, uh-huh. and they're absolutely tiny. You know, they were they were you know this is a subject I've been interested um, in for years. And funnily enough, a woman has just moved in a hundred yards across. In fact, she's coming in for dinner later tonight. Who is one of those Romanian orphans who? has now got hip dysplasia and I'm like, oh, shit, right. I didn't even think about that. So so when we don't touch, this is w- what we do as humans. We create this massive void in mm-hmm. terms of our health. We know that touch is, um, is cheap, it's free, it's not addictive. I mean, look at the, the, the opioid crises we have around the world out here now. Um, we know it reduces infections, time spent in ICU, and yet nobody yeah. anywhere is going to, when you walk into a doctor's surgery, say, hey, how you doing? You know, oh yeah, I've got a low level infection. Right, why don't you come and see our massage therapist for a session for an hour and a half? Because we know that that helps. We know that that works. We know that all those markers are in there. Nobody's yeah. doing it. So what? Well, it's why interesting because, in especially in the U.S. healthcare system, it's we're definitely going backwards as far as manual touch goes. Uh, and it, I don't know if it was you that was the first one that brought it up, or or if it was during my university training. Um, where they were looking at saying that losing some of the manual touch with the patients has reduced outcomes like quite severely. Absolutely. Yeah. And and, well evidenced. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so, so I guess I I think, you know, in in a lot of it's probably in the, in the U S of course, there's a sort of a social, social structure around touch that has to be sort of, uh, worked out as far as insurance goes and liability and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, how is it, do we know any of the mechanisms as to why light touch or even more manipulative type of touch, whether it be physical therapy or physiotherapy or massage yeah. therapy or anything like that? Like, how does that translate into better overall? Well, we, we know we know we understand the principle of mechanoreceptors. We understand, you know, that that we can we can create sensation and that type of sensation is, is adaptable and I don't know. I don't know what kind of audience we're talking to here, but you know how technical people. Like anyway, to get you, but... we can go as deep as you yeah, want. Yeah, okay. <laughs> but we, you know, we we have these different classes of mechanoreceptors that detect light touch, deep touch, um, vibrations, so on and so forth. And of course, that's great because you don't need a whole load of sensory information. You know, you sit down on a chair, the chair is soft. Your butt says the chair is soft. Thanks very much. It doesn't need to know. Um, that constantly all the time, so it switches it off, and so we have this adaption. And most of the, the the nerve pathways that we're using are myelinated. And so there's these sort of oligodendrocytes, these Schwann cells wrapped around the nerves, and they speed up that process of, of information that travels along the, um, along the nerve pathway. Um, so I'm just going to say it because I just love the word, saltatory conduction. I love that. Saltatory, jumping from node to node. Yeah, saltatory is Italian for, for jumping. So saltatory conduction, really? those, yeah, oh. that's saltatory. I need to learn more about linguistics. That's the problem. Yeah, it's cool. I, it's, I've it's, often it's... said that I think I originally, of course, in my original naive take, when I first did bad in anatomy, I thought I'd, if I just learned Latin, that I would make it through anatomy much easier. <laughs> <Yeah>. Mate, <laughs> listen, it's Greek you got to learn as well. So you got to learn Greek and, and Latin, you know, like like uh, the collarbone is, um, uh, is um, the clavicle and, and yeah. clavicles, the sternoclido, clido. Clido, yeah. sternoclidomatic, clevo is a Greek word meaning key. And then translate that into the, the, the Dutch, which is schlauterbein, and the, the, the German, which is schlusselbein, and they're all referred to as the key bone. So you know, go figure. So we know we know we have these these mechanoreceptors. We know that how they get there. And for most of the mechanical receptors, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong here, they're tending to go to more of the, 
um, the, the the cortexes that are involved in in sort of the mechanical cortexes, those sensory yeah. cortexes. Yeah. But there is a class of um, of nerve endings that were discovered um, a few years ago by some Swedish researchers, um, and they call them tactile C fibers. And these oh, are unmyelinated, great. and these unmyelinated tactile C fibers. A really good article in Nature that explains it really simply. They travel a lot, a lot more slowly, and, and instead of going to um, the, the 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 primary cortex, the mechanical cortexes of the brain, they go into a deeper part of the brain, which is the insular cortex. So the insular cortex is dealing with stuff. I mean, we haven't even found out fully what the insular cortex is dealing with yet, as far as yeah. I understand. But um, a lot of emotional stuff. It's dealing with the enteric nervous system, that feeling of you know what your guts are doing. There's a lot of um, emotional memory involved rather than necessarily emotional sort of sensation, but storage of emotional memory. But also what we think, and this is what my PhD subject would be and what I'd like to talk to this woman about, is that that the insular cortex is involved in the process of repair. And so the, the principle being that you're going to get signals going, you know, pituitary t- and, and, and driving those uh, laydowns of fibroblastic activity. Um, and from that is going to be growth as well. So there's going to be growth hormones, there's going to be TGFs involved, I suspect. Um, but the very light touch, if you watch um, a woman breastfeeding and you see the stroking, that really light stroking of the face, um, mm-hmm. the cuddle that you have, and, and also the different types of touch. You know, a, a, a dad might rough and tumble, whereas a mother might be more gentle. And so we have different types of touch that children learn. And from there, they learn to be out in the world and also clearly to be able to grow. Um, and and as uh, as my friend is now demonstrating, and I hadn't even really considered that, that if you're not if you're not growing, it's not just the physical growth. It's also the the bone plates. It's also the joint plates. It's also um, the hip displacements. And we're going to be looking to see if we can contact um, some of those orphans from you know years ago in their forties now and find out to to what extent there are other joint issues and other health issues that that are associated with that lack of growth. And that's to do with touch. So it's going to be huge in terms of being able to, to understand that. I'm going to look for some studies that had mouse studies that had pups that were deprived of of motherly touch, but were somehow kept alive and fed and stuff. That that'd be the tricky part. Be there's some really study. screwed up. There's that. There's a. There was that guy. Then um, what was the test with the monkey? That it was. I was horrible. Where they, you know, they just had it in a in a metal cage and they had a bit of toweling that it could cuddle and it was. A, is it Bo? Um, Boba, the boba monkeys or something. Oh, like that's thing. right. That's right. Oh, it's really, it's, it was horrible. Yeah. Those are some of the yeah. wild studies. Yeah, you I would never that. get that passed by, at least by American standards. I don't know what. You wouldn't get it UK. Passed. No, no, it's a true, you know, <laughs> ethics you have to do. Now, but, if you can't yeah. get past the American standards, you're definitely not getting past the UK standards for study. <laughs> no. So we, if we understand that touch, you know, that once we take touch out of our society, then we yeah. sort of become dissociated from that. We, you know, it becomes... There's a lot of stuff around, um, and you're right. You know, we've we've kind of made a, a lot of suspicion around touch, and so therefore we've sexualized it, and as a result, we've commodified it. You know, so now you you, you have to go to a, a therapist and be touched. You know, right. and um, and if you're not being touched by a therapist, then is there sexual content? Um, and therefore, we have a lot of confusion, a lot of unhappiness and suspicion around people who want to be touched in certain ways, a lot of shame, and societies that aren't touched are, are, are generally angry societies. I think. Yeah. Discuss. Well, <laughs> what's kind of interesting, though, is that you do get, let's say, even from a, a, a manual therapy type of session, even if it's very light, oftentimes they feel a profound sense of relief of pain, like instantly or something like that, which almost yeah. suggests that perhaps the underlying 
uh, injury wasn't as much structural as it was somewhat of a neurochemical or neurotransmitted type of uh, injury or something that was sort of being transmitted as an injury, but it wasn't actually structurally damaged. I think you what know, you mean to say is the way that I, that I sum it up with, with, with all my clients is to say pain is an output. Like, yeah. What do you mean? Like, well, you, you don't feel pain in your knee. I mean, you stand on a Lego brick at two o'clock in the morning and you, you jump up and down and we can go through the mechanics of that. But that that's an output. That's a signal that's going from your body to your uh, spinal cord, going up to your hypothalamus and being interpreted. And so context is, is, is hugely important. And, and, you know, if I, I, and I, and I demonstrate this in, in class and I say to somebody, may I, may I touch you? You know, and they say, yes. And I've got consent and I put my hand on their shoulder and I'm touching them. I say, can you feel that? And they say, yes. But, and I say, right. So context is now here. I'm your teacher. I'm standing up. You paid to be here. And, uh, but fast forward to 11 o'clock at night and I ask you the same question. What's your answer going to be if we're in a bar, you know, and, and may I touch you? Absolutely not. Sod off. And so context, context is really important. And the output is, is going to be dependent on that. Um, and again, the same thing goes that, you know, I could say I'm going to I'm going to punch you in the face. And you'd think that's a horrible thing to say. But I could also say to somebody, well, I'm going to chase you around and smack your bottom. And the, the threat of violence is inherent in both statements. But one might be well received and the other one <laughs> is not. You know, we've got people that BDSM and, and, and all kinds of stuff who, who yeah. that's where they get off. So. So t one person's touch is another person's kink and, and one person's pain is another person's pleasure. And so it's really interesting. And that's why I'm so interested in behaviors. And most of the time with my clients, they're not in half as much pain as they think they are. Yeah. I tell them you're not in pain. It's, well, that's you're that's in fear of, of you're in fear of pain. And that's a different thing. Yeah. Well, we're all in fear of pain. Kind of. So if, oh, I, yeah. if, if you hold your shoulder up around your neck and you yeah. go, right. OK, so what is what is that touch therapy? It's an it's a neurobiological intervention. Yeah. You're not changing anything underneath you. When a therapist rubs you, they're not releasing your fascia or breaking down knots or, you know, doing anything else. It's, it's just biologically implausible. They're giving you a rub and they're sending a signal. They're interfering the, the, with that mechanism that's yeah. either going on the way up or on the way down. I put my hand on your shoulder and I say, Nick, you know, you, you're lifting your shoulder up in there and you stop doing that. We've changed the signal that's going between your spine and your brain and you've interpreted that and you've changed your behavior. So how do we, how and when I say we, it's a collective we, how do you, cause you know, I do research studies on breathing, but, but how, how is the, um, educating individuals on these concepts able to sort of change the mantra of being able to in, integrate some more of these touch things? Cause say, I'm, I'm a drinker of the Kool-Aid of your, your philosophy uh, to an extent of like, obviously the, the mind body connection is very important. And a lot of times if you have an instant relief of an injury, well, then it was probably something that was more neurological based that was sort of triggering or sort of signaling something that was maybe not exactly structurally damaged. And so there's definitely that component of it. And obviously we can see state dependency of everything. If I hit you with a taser in the middle of a marathon run, you're probably not going to feel it as much as if I hit you with a taser when you're laying in bed, you know, sure. I don't know why I picked a taser, but we, you could pick anything like, that. you know, and, and so yeah. Yeah. being, being able to sort of educate that is, is not always as sexy, right? Because it's a, it's a rational line of thinking and rational line of thinking when you're trying to expand to the masses is not very, not very good because they want to hear, I smush my connective tissue with this big spiky ball. Sure. I get better, yeah. right? That's that's the thing, and, and that sells, right? 
Look at the fashion yeah. move. Look at the fashion. Hey, look, move. we have to sell it. We have to sell a, sell a story. Me, me saying to somebody, um, "I'm going to talk you out of being in pain," um, isn't 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 sexy at all. But what I what I'm interested in, you know, and, and I ask this question, um, you know, when you're lying on a on a on a, on a foam roller, what do you think you're doing? I'm I'm interested in, in people saying. Sometimes people they go, oh, "I hear what you said there," and they tell me their story, and I go, oh, "That's kind of interesting," and it's it's a bullshit. I mean, it's it's. <laughs> It has no basis in what's happening. Yeah. You know, I'm releasing the fascia and I'm, I'm helping it to glide and breaking down adhesions between the layers. And it's like, fine, you know, it's, that's not the reality of what, what is in the body. So, and I think we, you know, medicine has a lot to, a lot to blame in many respects as well. And American medicine is, is a big problem as much as in this country, you know, you, you can go and carry your leg in somewhere and they go, whoa, you know, put a sticky plaster on that, take a couple of aspirin, you'll be fine. Um, <laughs> and you, but as well as you turn up to it in America with some vague sense of unease and suddenly you're six days in hospital with, you know, 50,000 pounds worth of tests done on you. So yeah. it's, it's, it, and somewhere in the middle is, is weird. Uh, every single woman in the United States that I've dissected apart from one, I've dissected a lot, has had a hysterectomy. Now are you trying to tell me that every woman needs a hysterectomy? Of course not. But the, but the more insurance you have or the better insurance you have, the more medicine you're going to get because that's how people get paid in your country. Yeah. Um, and it's a mistake because you're not going to necessarily need the, the medicine that you, you know, put it this way. If you didn't have it, yeah, it, it wouldn't be a problem for you. And I think so. I think that's the issue that we have is that, you know, again, I've got back pain. Right. Well, let's take a picture of your spine. Oh, yeah, you've got a bulging disc. Well, here's the thing. Most people with a bulging disc don't have back pain. Most people with back pain don't have a bulging disc. You know, yeah. well, I've got an X-ray. Well, have you got an X-ray of ten years ago or twenty years ago? Now you've got an X-ray of just now, and so now you're attributing you know that picture to your pain. Well, well you're twenty years down the track, so it's more likely to be the date on your birth certificate that's the attributor of your back pain than anything else. Well, it's you know? it almost comes back to like you were talking about with the functional training. Like, what is your fun- like? It, it function functional training is only what makes it functional is whatever your goal is. And it's so awesome. if you're doing something like completely off then, yeah. but a similar thing is, you know, when you're mentioning like a lot of bulging discs don't exactly give pain, but when you go in for back pain and you have a bulging disc, it's easy to put two things together to say that it's probably your bulging disc, sure. but it might not be, you might've had that bulging disc for 10 years, but there was no other reason to take a picture of your back, you know? We, and, we don't we don't have a normal. And if you look at spines, for example, you, you know yeah. you look at some athlete spines, um, and they're absolutely gnarly. They look like somebody's taking a baseball bat to them. Um, and um, sorry, dogs kicking up. Um, but they, they look like somebody's taking a baseball bat to them. And then you can see this perfect looking spine. You go, that's a textbook spine. Um, yeah. And you bring the person out, and they've been in chronic pain for twenty years, and the gnarly spine, and there's nothing wrong with them. So there isn't a standard norm when you're looking at spines that yeah. you can say that's that's going to be a spine that doesn't have any pain. So is there, and this is sort of the the difference a lot I see sometimes between the physiotherapy type of treatment versus that of let's let's just say traditional Western medicine type of treatments, mm. is that a lot of the traditional Western medicine medicine treatments, although many pushes are going towards personalized medicine, which is great, uh, but the fact of the matter is we're trying to get a lot of these values towards a normal value, whether it be your blood pressure, your cholesterol, your testosterone, your movement, your body or whatever. I think the trouble is that it's a moving goalpost, you know, so, and, and what is the norm? My mother is a really good example. She went to the doctor a couple of weeks ago um, and um, she's 90. And so they said, oh, your blood pressure is a little high and we want to get that down. It's like, well, come yeah. on, what is it? So uh, we measured it and it was about 160 over 85. I'm like, that's sure. fine. Is, is it high? Yeah, but she's 90. 
what do you yeah. want to do with that? You want to put her on a load of medications that are going to change that. Now she's got celiac disease um, and she's also um, had her thyroid well, messed about with, with. So now they've got medication, which isn't her thyroid's not quite working. So thyroid levels are changed around celiacs, but then you've also got absorption rates. Yeah. So absorption rates are typically a lot lower when you're dealing with people with um, celiac disease because the, the lumen of the gut wall doesn't absorb so much. So I, I went through, I said, right, we're going to take you off your antacids, which is this lo low dose of antacid you've been taking for 20 years. And I think that's yeah. going to increase your absorption. And that's then going to help because the big problem for her was vertigo. So this is what we're dealing with. We, you know, essentially yeah. what we did, and I contacted a doctor and said, this is what I think. And he said, yeah, and gave him the references and we're not going to argue with that. But who, who can do that? You know, how many of us can do that? And right. So we take this norm, we say, here is a blood pressure, but blood pressure for what? You know, the blood pressure that I need to go climbing is different than the blood pressure that I need to sit and have a beer and, you know, yeah. chill out. And so if we understand that there are sets of numbers and that those are a starting point for further investigation, like a hypothesis, then we can say, all right, well, you, your blood pressure is a bit high. So let's have a little look. What's your family history? Well, you know, what do your dad die of? And are you a smoker? And are you a drinker? And what's your weight like? And then we can build a picture. But once we start to say your blood pressure should be 125 over 75, well, it's, it's just not helpful. And, and screening isn't medicine. You know, testing people's hormone levels isn't medicine. It's just a way of, of trying to do something that, you know, there's no definition of healthy in those, in those, those instances. You know, it's the people falling either side of a bell curve, BMI, um, um, blood pressure, cholesterol. This is all just a nonsense in relation to what defines health. Health is not defined by those numbers ever. Yeah. And that's, that's always a, the scary thing too. And I think the first thing a lot of students learn, especially when you're teaching them about BMI, is that they realize that you can have a very healthy person that's a bodybuilder, for example. Sure. And, uh, and not to say that all bodybuilders are healthy, but you can have a healthy bodybuilder that has an obese BMI. And if you're going by the traditional treatment, then all of a sudden the insurance prices go up and then they're they're being sure. met with a dietitian if they had to go by the clinical standard in order to in order to uh, get treatment for their quote BMI, even though they have ten, you know, five, ten yeah. percent body fat. But have you seen the have you seen the, the studies that come out just just today the studies about the increase in in, in cancer cancer rates under the age of uh, fifty have you seen that come out for now and huh. um, and it's huge I mean we're talking about eighty percent increase now yeah. I did a I did a whole way too long um, YouTube and Facebook live on it today about saying look okay for a start eighty percent of incidents doesn't mean it's eighty times higher it's like whatever it's twenty five and a thousand eighty percent call it you know another 25 another 20 so it goes to 45 and a thousand 100,000 is populous is difference between incidence and prevalence and yada 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 but but when you look at it as a whole when you look at trends and I think that's really where those numbers are going is yeah. that you know you have those overall increase in blood pressure so therefore you have to have a swing to the other end to get them down so that you haven't got these high ones and we're seeing an increase in obesity now Obesity doesn't cause type 2 diabetes, but there is a strong association. And um, so we're seeing these ultra processed foods that people are eating are being kind of looked at now to go, well, hang on a minute. They're high in fat, they're high in sugar, they're high in salt, and they're high in all kinds of, I don't know, what is guar gum, acetic acid, whatever it happens to be. You know, who, who's got that shit in their cupboard, man? You know, you can't eat that. <laughs> you um, don't. <laughs> and I recommend, and I, it always shocks me when I go to America because I go in, I go, I get the trolley and, and somebody oh, says, yeah. well, you, you've been to the Protos. 
like we only have the produce to make the store look nice and it's kind of true because the rest of it is just it's so much sugar i can't eat bread in america it's so sweet it's a chemistry station it really is you know and it's it's frightening to see the degree of of sweetness you you guys have and and fizzy drinks these are ultra processed foods and they're going to mess with us so i think that those numbers are, are things that starting with ansel keys back in the 70s who who associated incorrectly um, um, saturated fats with high heart disease and then after that it was all low fat and low sugar and from there you can see the heart disease rates going up because the increase in sugar was taken off um, yeah. and I think I, I have no doubt in my mind that sugar is an absolute nightmare I think it's a driver of so many things it's it's a problem it, it is weird how fun like I, I tend to try to eat like as, as little processed foods as I can not not because I care about the health of processed foods because I'm not all that conscious about that, but at the same, but just because I just find that I feel better when I'm not eating all that kind of stuff. And, uh, once in a while, if I'm in a rush, I'll grab like a granola bar or I'll grab something like that and you eat it and it's almost like it burns your tongue because it's so yeah. sweet sometimes. And you're like, wow, wow, that's, that's, I, I had a diet Coke for the first time in a long time, uh, the other day and I drank it and I thought, oh my God, that, that is like, I feel almost sick because it tastes so yeah, sweet it's so weird yeah. I, I was i was i went camping uh, with my girlfriend's kids over the summer and i thought oh, i just we'll just got these little cooking sauces to put some chicken yeah. and we'll do a cook curry and it's sort of this gelatinous I, i'm a chef so i make everything from scratch and it was a sort of this gelatinous goop and I, it was horrible um but i was in north carolina i gotta pl- also plug my class coming up which is an online scar tissue class because i'm going to be talking about um, scar tissue and dissecting it on live stream yeah with a physio but i was in north carolina where i um where i work out of as far as the lab is concerned and i went to this um this this diner and i said what do you recommend and she said you've got to fry, try the fried chicken and i'm like okay i'll have the fried chicken dinner and she brought this plate of chicken up and i'm like how who, who, who else is coming you know and I'm like, <laughs> is my family coming it's i mean american portion is it here. somebody could jump out and go happy birthday surprise or is it and it was this this, this chicken it was fried chicken and yeah. um and she said um and she she put down some and i had uh, there was some dumplings or something with it as well and then she brought some mashed potatoes and then she went oh, i'll go and get your fries i'm like whoa 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 can we just and, and then she said hang on honey i'm gonna get you your syrup and hot sauce i'm like what is this what is this fresh hell and she came up and she just poured this syrup and the hot sauce over this deep fried crispy chicken with this this big pile of cream potatoes i'm like it was amazing. Don't get me wrong. I absolutely loved it, but I thought I would die in a, in a month if I lived in oh, the yeah. same country. You have to eat it while watching the prolate spheroid, you know. Yes, yeah, pro- <laughs> drinking <laughs> the beer, drinking a beer. So, so I think I think I think when we see these extremes of how people are adapting, we go back to what we talked about earlier on about adaptive human behavior. And it, you know, it can be good or bad. It, we can be flexible, and we can live in incredible environments and heat and cold. Um, we can learn things, you know, look at what we've managed to do over the last 50, 60 years in terms of our technology. Um, but at the same time, we can also just become really fat and really stupid and really lazy. Um, yeah. And 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 generations of people will will follow in our wake. So yeah. I think I think it's I think the bottom line is choice for us for, for us and education um, yeah. and, um, and and movement. At the end of the day, I, I don't care if somebody wants to go CrossFit or yoga or what have you movement is the key what do we need to do we need to eat eat what do we mean by eat eat food which is food that you have some kind of agency over that you you have a degree for the most part 
of you know where it's come from and who's cooked it and what's in it. Um, and, yeah. and that, you know, you shopped around the outside of the supermarket because all the crap's in the middle. And that you move and you move regularly and you move in as diff many different ways as you possibly can um, in order to, whether it be dancing or picking apples or, you know, bending down and playing with your kids in, in as many different. And, and that's not necessarily exercise, that's movement. I'm not a great fan of exercise. I, I don't think, I think it's a bad word. Um, so, it sort of forces you into that basket of like, okay, now we're exercising and now we're not exercising. Yeah, you've got to go and put your gym shorts on and get in your air-conditioned car and go to a place yeah. that's another air-conditioned place in order to do something that somebody else has said you've got to do because it's good for you. Well, that's just – that's ridiculous. I told you I, – when I, when I had the gym for a little while, the strongest people and the most mobile people that came in were the manual laborers that had never been in a gym a day in their life. And they could – they were the most flexible. They were the sure. strongest – they yeah. were just athletes, but they had never worked out. But like, you know, in, in, in the traditional sense of. of yeah. You, but. you listen, if you go out, if you go out and see the guy that's doing your garden and, and, you know, you ask him to, to give you a hand, he'll give you a hand, he'll give you a hand and he'll, you know, he'll lift up that, that paving slab, what have you. And that's strength, that's strength, but that's functional strength. That's what I mean. Yeah. Um, and having big muscles may look good and it may be, be fine for you, but it's not necessarily going to help you in relation to understanding that from from a body-wide perspective what is what is function and and your need to be strong at that moment in time is part of your function and functional strength is is, is a big deal yeah um, i wanted to, to mention also the pain thing because i don't think we finished talking about um, the, the the understanding of, of pain in that respect yeah um, and, and and i wanted to go back to the idea that 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 if we if we if we watch somebody and listen to somebody then they will tell us everything that it is that we need to know. When somebody comes in with a back pain, they walk through that door. That That's not a back pain. Um, um, and I'll give you a, an example, your listeners. If you stand on, if you stand up and you've got your feet straight ahead of you, yeah. um, absolutely parallel, um, and about hip width apart, and then you lean to one side, you'll feel that you're going you're gonna to go over. You, know, you feel unstable. And so now come back to square and just take that one foot or the other. It doesn't make any difference and turn it out at 45 degrees, turn it out at a 45 degree angle. And, and now go back and load onto that leg and you'll find you're not going to fall over so much. The same thing goes if, if you take a step, a normal stride length, and then come back and go into a forward head position, really hunched position as if you're an old person, and now take a stride, you'll find that your stride length is reduced by at least five or six centimeters. Now, we measured those, that's been measured in a, an interesting study in Ohio, we found that, that, that stride length reducing over a period of three weeks by a, around five centimeters will predict a fall. I mean, it's going to happen. Wow. So, yeah. So, so this is the interesting thing is that pain and chronic pain can be predicted and predicated by the, how people are stable and how they compensate around the pain that they've already experienced to stay away from the pain that they don't want to experience. That sounded pretty good. I hope I recorded. Yeah, that was, we got coined that. <laughs> so, you know, if you know that you touch that, it's going to hurt you, but you've still got to touch it, you, you know, you're going to touch it gently. Go out and walk in the snow and, and, and watch people, you know, if you, if you walk around. You're going to change the way that you would normally walk. If you walked out down the sidewalk and, and as if it was icy now, people would think you were crazy. <laughs> but what are you doing? You don't want to fall over. And so you adjust the way that you move around. Yeah, it's and that's what we do. We we cannot fall over because the biological imperative is if we fall over, somebody's behind us and they're going to kill us and eat us. Yeah. Um, 
So falling over is a bad thing. So we're always looking for ways to not fall over. And when we're in pain, we're always looking for ways to not be in pain. So we will do a deal with the devil in order to avoid from that. Interesting. And our anatomy just compensates. Anatomy compensates, but we don't, if we say my back hurts, my elbow hurts and my hip hurts, then anatomy will take us to the hip or the knee or the back. That's Hmm. never where the pain is coming from. So, and that's where the problem is with our traditional approaches is that it's just not there. Once you change everything else, then, you know, uh, you you have a chance. But if you understand Hmm. that joined up nature, that as you turn your legs, something else compensates. And if you just apply the laws of physics to anatomy, that would be a start. (laughs) That's one of the things that I I appreciate about, uh, you know, I have mixed feelings when it comes to chiropractic, but uh, as a whole, you know, I, I, some of the manipulations are are fine, but the understanding that if your knee hurts, that it's probably not your knee, that's the, that's the rate limiting step and what's giving you knee pain. And, you know, a lot of times they'll chase down what the actual, problem is and at least you can get a better diagnosis for what's causing your problem but you know it's, it's when they sometimes bring out like the cold lasers and stuff that i lose interest but you know with the yeah. but I but mean, having a, a more holistic look at what might be actually causing it rather than just fixing what's hurting is but we've like also that. never done an, we've never done an audit on the human race and 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 that's <laughs> we've never worked out and this is what I want to do. I want to do an, a human I mean, race some, audit. Some extreme dictators have tried. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, you know, when I get donors on the table, particularly in medical schools, we go, you know, what do we get? We, we might get a cause of death or we might we'll get an age of cause of death. Sometimes, depending on the on the um, bequeathal secretary, you'll get a little bit more information, but you get nothing else. So my plan is when I get my own lab and in the next couple of years, hopefully, um, all donations gratefully received. It's pretty cheap to set a lab. It's just got to get the licensing sorted out in this country. Um, is to is to have a donor program to start a donor program and say, well, we want to find out about you. We want information about you. We want uh, we want to understand you know what you've done, what your sports were. You know, whether you smoked, what whether you were a drinker, what was you were you depressed. You know, what kind of questions can we ask you? What medication have you been on for fifteen years? And if somebody that's had chronic back pain for thirty years, what does that look like in a spine or a hip? Nobody's ever done it. So slowly but surely, we can start to build a database of, you know, what chronic pain in the lumbar area following a fall from a, you know, bicycle looks like and, and build a data a database of how that then affects people as far as their movement is concerned or, or the opposite. that actually 95% of people that have got chronic pain have no evidence of any connected tissue lay down at all in their, in their body after they're dead. So nobody's ever done it. It all comes down to the brain. No, I'm kidding. But kind of, kind of. I mean, a lot of it does. Yeah, if, that's true. If you you could have the worst musculoskeletal injury on the face of the planet, but if you didn't have any sort of uh, transduction of pain, then you wouldn't even know it. Precisely. You know, that's what I'm yeah. saying. Is that you know your knee hurts, but if I if I put a lesion in your spinal cord, it won't hurt anymore. Yeah. The, the, Same with stiffness. I, yeah, I will say, like you, there's no pain that you can't cure by putting someone in a coma. <laughs> Or killing them is another yeah. one. Listen, uh, you know, I, 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 I embalm. I do my own version of embalming. I, I go to Poland and do it. And um, I, I see a lot of people that come in with, with restrictions in their shoulders. I've got a bit of a restriction in my shoulder myself. I've never seen a dead person with a restricted shoulder. 100% yeah, full a- range of movement. <laughs> Knees and hips, slightly different because they get a lot of lay down and stuff in there. Yeah. Uh, but shoulders, 100% range of movement on dead people. Oh, every time. Every no problem time. whatsoever. Go figure. So you're, so you're doing a uh, a seminar coming up. I wanted to cover your uh, scars seminar pretty yes. quick in the yeah. yeah. So I don't keep you here forever then. And uh, so what what 
what interested you in scars? You know, the the laydown of excess. The bullshit, basically. The bu- the bullshit. Well, that's what got us all into everything. Yeah, I know. You know what? I'm so sick of people hearing saying I'm doing a scar tissue release class. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I made a little meme of, you know, the guys in, in um, Pulp Fiction, go ahead, you know, say you can release scar tissue one more time. And, and but th- there is some effects that we can have. And so when people have surgical in- intervention, particularly women who have mastectomies and stuff, um, then uh, the, the scar tissue lays down, but it also creates a huge range of restriction in mm. distal areas away from, you know, distal away from the site of surgery. Um, and, and then you also see other things. And I've seen a lot of things come up over the years, things like, as I said, most women I see that in the States that I dissect and work on have had um, hysterectomies, but then you also see these little prolapses coming up through the abdomen. Um, mm-hmm. Gallbladder surgery, even though it's, you know, um, keyhole surgery, you've still made a, a, an invasion into the system and you've still got this scarring and you've still got the potential for that to prolapse. So I've been very interested in that. And, um, and then there's also the understanding that we don't really understand inflammatory processes. We don't understand yeah. wound healing. You know, we know that inflammation leads to proliferation. We know, you know, cytokine activation. We know, um, pavementing was something I learned this year. You know what pavementing is and, you know, how capillaries open up and they, yeah. all that kind of stuff. Very cool. We know that, but we don't know what switches those things off and on. We don't know what the process of apoptosis is from, you know, phagocytosis and what that stage is, what prompts it, what starts it, what, what finishes it. So that's very interesting. So we could end up with an inflammatory process or a lay down of connective tissue um, that goes a lot longer than we think. Um, in heart surgery, you don't seal up the fibrous pericardium again. So you open the heart, you open the fibrous bag that's around it, you do the heart surgery, but you don't stitch that back up again. And I always wondered why. And I said to a heart surgeon once, why? And you're like, well, I, I don't know how they're going to, how they're going to scar up. We know that once we stitch something, you end up with a lot of cellular activity because it has to heal. In order to heal, that has to be inflammatory. Now you can make that work to your advantage sometimes by encasing things. Uh, there's a neuro thing that they put under the clavicle for Parkinson's, um, and it, inca- it creates its own little pocket of, of connective tissue. But around the heart, if you if you don't know what that scarring is going to do, how much person, so how much that scarring that person is going to lay down, and how tight it's going to get then you could end up with a a, a lot more restriction around that heart than you started with and so it's a lot better to just leave that sort of bag open and it'll it'll seal itself up and that's been the problem things like carpal tunnel which is just a nonsense you know you end up with with more problems from the scarring than you do from carpal tunnel in the first place because we don't know when we cut into somebody how it's going to heal and and there's no consistency you know i could you know you could get a cut in your arm tomorrow and and it heals one way and the next time it heals differently so is that diet is that environment is that water drinking is that you know who knows we just don't know is there any Um, way to use that to the advantage as far as when we talk about you know if you turn your head the wrong way for a while then you can get knee pain as far as you know you have that syncytial network between one part of the body to the other and disrupting one can kind of tug on the other but do you think like it's 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 probably not a great modality for therapy but could like uh positionally putting certain scars in certain areas or promoting a scar tissue type formation could maybe put a block between something like that? Uh, maybe. I think the, the trouble is really that, that you, you're doing the surgery or the scar or whatever it is because you need yeah. it. So 
you, you then got to deal with the consequences afterwards. And it, it, it's it's generally, you know, surgery by its nature is a fairly brutal exercise. And if you've yeah. been in, a, in, a, in, a, in a, an operating theater, you'll know what I mean. Um, and people are always surprised when you say, right, cesarean section. Well, you, you know, you've got all these layers of tissue, but they're not layered. They're already stuck together. So they're not going to be stitched individually. They're going to be picked up and held in place and then all stitched back together. Because if you try to stitch individual spaces, then you wouldn't have the stability anymore and the whole thing would prolapse. So, you, you know, what you've now got is you've now got a, a, a transverse abdominus and internal oblique and external oblique all going in different directions, held down in one place. Mm. So, so now you've got, you, you've not got the moving or able to interdigitate over their own surfaces. You've also got inflammation that can potentially create lots of cellular activity that could travel further away from that. So, you know, what, what can happen? Could we put exercises in that kept that moving, but would it also then create a blockage on the other side? Yeah, it's like a, it's like, it's like a wall. Mm, <laughs> we, yeah. we don't mention walls in your country, but I'm <laughs> not going to go there with that one. You know, it's, it's not going to, it's not going to stop things. It's just people are going to find a way around it or over it, you know, necessarily. But for, for the yeah. minute, if you put something that's going to necessarily change the direction of your movement and it doesn't have to be surgical it can be an intervention that is an injury and, and but now your function has changed and this is what annoys me in in sport you know like tiger woods for example is a really good example had a bad injury and you're coaching somebody back now to be the peak performance of that tiger woods but he's not that tiger woods anymore he's never going to be that so you're trying mm-hmm. to coach him into something that he can't be instead of finding out what he is and coaching him to that's a big problem i have with with elite sports and their coaches and they have conversations with coaches going dude he's had surgery stop trying coaching back to kicking his ball the way he was doing two years ago because he's not going to do it mm. and the way yeah, that he a- did it was going to gave him the injury in the first place so scarring isn't just necessarily surgical scarring wound healing is the same you know, yeah if, if you've got an injury you've still got bleed um inflammation proliferation um the lay down of different types of collagen and then you've got to remodel that it's never ever ever not going to be a scar so the interesting thing for me was to see you know what does that look like if, if we can follow those scars around specifically yeah. on, on donors that have had surgeries what are they going to look like in different areas um, and, and interesting um, and then what would be the application to treat them i think it'll be a lightning because I, th- I forgot who was talking about this just a couple of weeks ago about like the the rate of surgical regret in the US is like 14% or something like that. So basically like if you if you survey people after x amount of weeks after they've had a surgery what's what rate of them regret that they got the surgery. And it's it's relatively high. It's like 14% or something like that. And I wonder how much of that is and I don't know if it was included in the study but how much of it is assuming that after the surgery you're going to go back to where you were before. It's like if you had a meniscus taken out in your knee yeah. Like your knee is not the same knee anymore. It's now it's a knee minus exactly. one and yeah. minus one meniscus. Yeah. And so to, to expect you to be able to go back to doing single leg lunges with absolute stability is kind of it's ridiculous. Stupid. Yeah. Right. And I think this is the trouble is that is that, oh, well, once we've done the surgery, you'll be OK. Well, no, you, you may not have the same degree of pain, you know, into an ACL tear. Yeah. Although there's a lot of evidence to say, you know, you can manage them conservatively now. Um, so, you know, what are we doing? What's the object of our surgery? Back surgery is a really good example. We don't do back surgery in this country. Yes, don't do it because it's it's shit. It's useless. Um, and the, the, and the improvement rate. So basically, the, the, the only time you're going to get back surgery is if you have something that's degenerative. Mm. And the success rates are that if in six months time, 
um, you're no worse than you were when you had the surgery. That's success. Right. So that's, mm. that's pretty bad, right? You just haven't degenerated anymore. And success right. rates for those are around 30%. So 70% of the time you still got the surgery and your condition is degenerated. Yeah. Um, and you're still recovering. So, you know, we don't, we just don't do it. Um, it's, it's, it, it rarely is, is, is worth doing. So I think sometimes people are surprised. They, they come and they say, well, the surgeon said I should have surgery. Like, well, what do you think he's going to say that, you know, what you should have some reiki and some herb flowers in practice yoga he's a bloody surgeon <laughs> he's got a condo in the hamptons you know what do you how do you think he didn't get he didn't pay for that where he's selling you know it was health help books on amazon did he you know that's how <laughs> he's, he's got three wives so you know this is this is the, the American thing way. <laughs> yeah he he is what he does that's what he does so if you don't want to huh. get operated on don't go and see a surgeon um, I think we do too much. I think it's done willy-nilly. Cesarean sections, we're looking at, you know, at some point, it, there being 35% of uh, of live births in the UK um, for cesarean sections, and that's bonkers. That's that's major abdominal surgery yeah. scheduled in so that your obstetrician can go and play golf on time. You know, it, yeah. it's, it's all gone to pot. Just because we can doesn't mean to say that we should. Yeah. Well, that's... It's an interesting. It's an interesting when you take a step back and look at all the the procedures that go on and sort of the the connection of the dots that, if you will. But anyway, so you got uh, anything else that uh, is going on there, or you want to put any plugs out for uh, some of your seminars and things like that? Not look. I'm just sort of working out what I'm going to be doing for the next you know year or so. I'm going to go to um, coming over yeah. to, to North Carolina and um, visit your people in Ghost Town, where they are. I want to do that. <laughs> so. Uh, my hope is I want to get this lab together. I think, you know, I think the model of being able to do live stream for dissection around the world is something that only happens since lockdown. Yeah. So I'm trying to raise some funding for that, trying to uh, get some partners in, interested in that for the next year or so. It's not an expensive thing to do. Um, and then also look at, at building this program where we start to say, well, you know, how do people, how, how do people move when they're alive and what does that look like? Yeah. Vegan. Uh, the skin when they're dead so that's and people are really happy to talk about it they, they really want to tell you here's my body do what you want by the way it's really interesting i had this thing done so i think yeah. we need to, to look at that um i'm just starting tomorrow night i'm starting a um um a, a series don't you know, just i think i'm gonna it, it's, i like getting on youtube and, and talking talking crap so yeah. i'm gonna be doing it every every thursday in uk time at seven o'clock called not a collection of parts and okay. that's my kind of um is it a podcast? Every man and his dog's got a podcast these days. I, I know. know. It's um so it's a it's going to go out on YouTube and Facebook Live and um and then if it's if it's not too visual we could probably podcast it. So I'll see how that goes. But the big one that's coming up is going to be the live stream human dissection class in, in October. So cool details well, of that on my website at functionalanatomy.com. Well, good. Well, uh, thanks again for coming. I love the stuff that you're doing and uh, always an entertaining take to take a <laughs> step back and look at it, you know. <laughs> I think I think somebody I enjoy called it. me a shaman. My, my you know, my, my, my formative years, 30 years have been as a manual therapist, putting my hands on people. I'm not a, an academical scientist. I only started my academic career seven years ago. I went back to university and, yeah. um, and to, 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 to do a bachelor's. And so um, I walk That's a line between... The, the, uh, there's a polarization between allopathic medicine who just is so absolutely if it's not evidence-based and you can't you know i was trying to find something today if it wasn't the fact i've been a in a part of a university i'd have to pay 40 pounds to get access to a paper i can't produce evidence that you need without yeah you know. um so on the one hand you've got the polarization of medical and on the other hand you've got 
the nutcases that are going, you know, 5G is going to cause us, give us whatever it's going to be. And I did my research on Facebook. And, and some, and it's big pharma. Don't ever say the word big pharma to it. I'm going to punch you if you do. <laughs> and so somewhere in the middle is, is me who understands the science, who understands the, the, the cell biology and the functional behavior and the, and the anatomy of it. And also yeah. spent my life putting my hands on people where weird shit happens and things change. And I don't know why. So I, th- I think I'm, I like to walk along that line between entertainment and, um, and education. Edutainment. I think it's a thing there. Huh. I love it. So I think, I think science uh, is up his own ass and I think it, it's done a really bad job. I mean, it took me six and a half minutes to mention the PhD, you know, <laughs> you only, yeah, but you, you only mentioned it Let once. If you're, if you're a vegan, you'd have, you'd have mentioned it several times. A vegan PhD, you'd have told me 55 yeah. times. If you're I a mean, vegan PhD as a, and a pilot, God knows. See, I didn't mention the second one. So, you know, <laughs> I was, I was going to ask you cause I know you've got more than one, but hour 16 before we get to that one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's, I think science communicates badly. I think, you know, the, yeah. the pandemic was awful in terms of how science went about communicating things. And, uh, I, I think it could do a better job. And if it was a little bit more entertaining and interesting and just explain yeah. it to people in ways that they are approachable approach, you know, I've had to learn how to write papers and it's, you know, it's wrong. It's awful. It's just horrible. Yeah. It's like old world English to try to, enter, you know, explain something that's interesting. But, you know, we took a group know. of people. We tested that. We collated 64 individuals on a scale of theta. Shut up. <laughs> just tell me what I need to know. Just tell me what I want. You know, abstract conclusion and why you ran out of money. <laughs> uh, always entertaining Julian. all right buddy hey listen well, let me know when it's going out and i'll um i'll put it out there and uh and um if it's okay with you i've recorded a few bits of this anyway tonight so. oh absolutely i'll and i'll send you everything and uh as well so www.theneuronetwork.org for anything yeah, our you know our attempt you to the add some oh yeah you gotta look it up now net. and you can oh, no, i'm just putting it into in new because i'm gonna otherwise i forget uh dot oh. org right okay dot org yeah but yeah so my, my my takeaway w- is that um that everything that we do in terms of manual therapy is neural interference but we're not actually changing anything you don't release fascia you don't yeah. change structures underneath your hands it's physiologically impossible but you are interfering and changing that and it may be that it's going to take a week yeah. or so for that to kick in but it's all it's all the nervous system well, we'll put together a study and write up a review, you know? Uh, yeah, definitely. Well, we have to, don't we have to do don't we have to do a pilot first? Yeah, yeah. We, yeah. It's, it's funding. <laughs> Anyways, I do appreciate <laughs> okay, you uh, coming Thank on you our, so much our for inviting me. Yes, absolutely. So, 